0: Tweeter writes in, Should I be playing Cameron Meredith or Alshon Jeffrey in week six? (laughs) Already? It's been four days, and you people have already taken the Cameron Meredith dance party too far. Four days! I was able to enjoy Cameron Meredith for four days until I inevitably was forced... To begin a Pump the Brakes on Cameron Meredith initiative. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Cameron Meredith is still the number three receiver on the Chicago Bears. And Alshon Jeffrey will not be matching up with Darius Slay or Vontae Davis every week. Alshon Jeffrey has faced a nest of pit viper pass defenses so far this season. And when he wasn't facing a nest of pit viper pass defenses, he was facing an anaconda-like shutdown corner. Houston, top five pass defense. Philadelphia, top five pass defense. Dallas, top five pass defense. Detroit, shadowed by Darius Slay. Against Indianapolis, shadowed by Vontae Davis. Alshon Jeffrey has faced the gauntlet of wide receiver defenders so far this season. So no, I'm not playing Cameron Meredith over Alshon Jeffrey. In fact... I'm looking to sell Cameron Meredith and buy Alshon Jeffrey, not vice versa. I'm also buying Eddie Royal because Eddie Royal is the slot receiver and Alshon Jeffrey is the starting X receiver. I believe Jeffrey and Royal will be the Bears' leaders in target share, followed by Zach Miller and Cameron Meredith. Cameron Meredith is number four on the target totem pole in that passing game. I loved him against the Colts, matched up with Patrick Robinson. I am less enthusiastic about Cameron Meredith matched up against the Jacksonville secondary. So I am not going to let the tout wag the dog. You see this so often, the tout wags the dog. My brand as a fantasy analyst is now tied to Cameron Meredith, so I feel compelled to cape up for Cameron Meredith every week, and I'm not going to do it because my job is to have a clinical analysis of players and situations to project weekly fantasy points, not to tether myself to a particular player because he's now intertwined with my brand. That's not how it works here. You see this often. The servant becomes the master. The breakout player warps the analyst's weekly projections. I will not be wrapped around the finger of Cameron Meredith. No, no. And I will not be wrapped around the finger of members of this audience. But I love how members of this audience are now taking to Twitter, told you sewing my told you so. Like that happened. I told you you were going to do a Cameron Meredith dance party. I told you you would do that. That's the feedback we're getting on Twitter. Follow us at Roto Underworld. <laughs> That's a warning that this show may be jumping the shark. When the listeners are told you' sewing, so you're told you so. You didn't trick me, Fantasy Mansion. I knew you were going to do a dance party all along. That seven minute setup did not fool me. I was waiting patiently for the dance party. I knew was inevitable. Told you. Okay, you got me. <laughs> now and forever you can always expect a dance party after a cameron meredith level breakout yes you got me this whole community is just enthusiastic about fantasy football like that makes me so happy your happiness reverberates off me back to you back to me back to you there's just this perpetuating positive feedback loop of euphoria and enthusiasm and i love it i now find myself taking shelter in football twitter Sitting in front of this microphone is where I feel the most comfortable. I can feel the positive energy beaming at me as I speak. It's just, it feels great. I just want to tell you it's a great feeling. From where I sit, I feel great. Knowing that you feel great, it's just great, but it's virtual. I can't see you as I'm speaking, and yet I can feel the energy. It's bizarre. The only person I can actually see is my neighbor through the window, and he hates me. The positive outpouring after the Cameron Meredith dance party was virtually stimulating, while in reality, the person I was looking at across the driveway filled me with contempt. My wife and I do not have a good relationship with the neighbors. I have a great relationship with people all around the world that listen to this show. But the people I'm in the closest physical proximity with, my neighbors, hate me. I find that bizarre and amusing. They moved in two years ago, and very soon they bought a dog, a Springer Spaniel. We don't have a fence. And they talked to us about installing an invisible fence for their Springer Spaniel. However, between our two homes is a small walkway. Our garages are in close proximity. So in order to walk to the backyard, we actually have to walk fairly close to their home. And they wanted to allow their dog to run through what's essentially an alley unobstructed. And that was fine in theory, except we had a two-year-old daughter at the time. So you can imagine two-year-old daughter walking to the backyard, the dog coming around the other side, and then boom, collision. Because an invisible fence may stop a dog from crossing into the neighbor's yard, but it doesn't stop my daughter from wandering into their yard just by a foot. You erect a fence because it not only keeps people and animals in, it also keeps people and animals out. So we said, that's not a good idea. You should put up a real fence, and that way there's no liability issues with our daughter and your dog. (laughs) And they argued with us. And my wife was intractable. Understandably I was knocked over by a dog when I was two years old and broke my leg I was bit in the face by another dog as a child and they had to put that dog down my dad Kicked that dog off my face so hard They had to put the dog down not because it was a mean dog But after my dad kicked it he had such internal bleeding. They had to put him down I've had some unfortunate incidents with dogs in my life, but I wasn't even the one most vocal about this fence going up, my wife was. And then neighbors push back and they push back and eventually my wife said, listen, if that dog touches our daughter, that dog's going down. And our neighbor just snapped. You could see his face just turn ashen. He didn't want to hear that. And I've never been more turned on after she said that. I was like, wow, that is the voice of a strong woman And I thought, damn, she's right. You have to put up a physical fence to protect both parties from one another. This makes perfect sense. The neighbors did it. But after that encounter, our relationship turned completely cold. They would not look at us anymore. When someone is in your proximity, in your peripheral view, you turn, you try to make eye contact and wave, acknowledge their existence. I've been doing that for years, and they've just been looking forward, just icing us for two years after this disagreement about a physical fence versus an invisible fence, we won the argument by bringing up the liability issue. But months go by and you get iced every time you try to express civility to the people that live next door to you. And I didn't realize it, but there was resentment building up inside me. I just, didn't like them anymore but i am a gregarious person when you meet me it's very difficult for me to feel contempt against someone to not have a cheery disposition but it was so wearying and dispiriting to live next to these people so finally we decided to build our own fence a privacy fence much taller than their ugly chain link fence but we had to cut down a couple trees to do it they blocked the project we learned why They're putting their house on the market and they didn't want any construction or trees cut down. Yes! Yes! Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you wish for. You don't know who the next family is going to be, but it's hard for me to imagine a worse family than the Coldstones next door. And as soon as I realized they were moving away, something just snapped inside me. Now, every time I see them, I go out of my way to greet them with a big wave and a smile. And they hate it. Oh, they hate it. Before I was subtle, trying to make eye contact. If they refused to make eye contact, I would turn and go on my way. Not anymore. I am going in with the big wave and the big hello and the big how you doing every time. And they can't stop it. And I love it. Now they're growing weary of me. They can't handle the sunshine. It's brilliant. My neighbor is getting more and more and more enraged every time I greet him with the over the top cheery disposition. I can't imagine anything bothering another human being more than what I'm now subjecting him to. And it's beautiful. And recently he snapped. He did, it was amazing. He was raking leaves, preparing to put his house on the market, getting it all cleaned up. I walked out onto my stoop. I raised my arms up. I said, Ah, oh, beautiful day, isn't it, Ryan? You're doing a great job. And he snapped. He looked up and he said, Fuck you. <laughs> yes, I win. I win. Checkmate. <sighs> you got a problem? Give them a little salute, walk back inside. It's a beautiful day now that I know you're going to be gone. And I was thinking about my relationship with my neighbor. Toxic. Contemptuous. It reminds me of the relationship we now have between zero RB people and the value-based drafters. You have football analysts at NFL.com going out of their way to provoke the zero RB people. I read this tweet from Matt Harmon on Monday night. Both of these teams, Tampa Bay and Carolina, went with the zero RB strategy, and this is the lowest scoring first half of the season. That says it all, IMO. That was quick, Matt Harmon. He was a supporter of zero RB, only took a couple weeks for him to change his mind. Never mind that Cameron Artis Payne posted 85 yards and two touchdowns in that game, and Jaquiz Rogers posted over 100 yards. And 17 fantasy points. Never mind. 0RB, hey, it's boring. 0RB doesn't get you many points, right? So I clicked on this tweet and I read the feedback. Most of it was some form of, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And he replied with, well, it seems my tweet went over a lot of heads. <laughs> Yeah, it did. Or it was just a wrong-headed tweet. You see a lot of those in social media. And I get it. Some tweets just sound a lot better in your head. And then when you write them down, they just don't work. Ask any comedian. A lot of jokes don't work. They sound good in your head. And then when you put them out there in the world, uh, they fall flat. Just like that tweet fell flat. It was either nonsensical or wrong. It certainly didn't hit the mark. But hey, maybe it just went over my head. If there is a fantasy football concept that has gone over people's heads, it is 0RB. 0RB has clearly gone over the heads of the people at NFL.com. Clearly. NFL.com fantasy is waving the anti-0RB flag. And when you read tweets from Michael Fabiano with his reasoning for dismissing 0RB, you realize most people don't understand the fundamental underpinnings of 0RB strategy. Look at Matt Harmon. Matt Harmon is staking out every position to ensure that he can never be wrong. I've got tweets supporting 0RB, and I've got tweets mocking 0RB. I'm covered. It's one thing when you lack conviction in individual player analysis. I've pretty vocally changed my mind about Devontae Freeman over the last six months. I used to think Devontae Freeman was a good running back in a great situation in 2015. Now I think Devontae Freeman is a great running back who has been put in an unfair situation by the Atlanta Falcons, allowing Tevin Coleman to soak up most of the glory. So I will change my position on players like everyone else. But the real window into the mind of a fantasy analyst is their roster construction concepts. And when a fantasy analyst lacks conviction in his roster construction concepts, 0RB being a core roster construction concept, that reveals a lack of roster construction methodology, and it reveals the person as being someone who is more apt to ride the en vogue wave of the day in fantasy football without fully internalizing the philosophical underpinning of their approach understanding the philosophical underpinning of zero RB has allowed me to maintain conviction in that strategy in the face of a worst case scenario that has played out over the first five weeks of 2016. I asked 10 fantasy analysts over the summer on both the football diehards podcast, the Roto underworld podcast, the Roto baller podcast. The question was posed. Are we in the midst of an RB Renaissance? And we never received a definitive answer from any of the fantasy analysts that we brought on. But I can tell you the answer now with definitive certainty. Yes, we are in the midst of an RB renaissance. In 2015, running backs 1 through 24 in fantasy football scored 15.1 fantasy points per game. This year, that same running back cohort has scored 15.8 fantasy points per game. That's almost a full fantasy point per game more being scored by the top 24 running backs in fantasy football. That's a significant number. But there's even stronger evidence of a running back renaissance on playerprofiler.com. When you go to playerprofiler, in the top right-hand corner of the main player panel, you'll see a field called VOS. Stands for value over stream. It calculates the points per game that a particular player is posting over and above the most likely replacement you could find for that player on the waiver wire. Not on benches across the league, on the waiver wire. So if you lost DeMarco Murray tomorrow and someone else rostered Derrick Henry, and you had to go to the waiver wire to replace DeMarco Murray, what would be the differential between the running back you just picked up from waivers and DeMarco Murray? That differential equals DeMarco Murray's value over stream. And if you go to playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash analysis, you can pull all the value over stream values... For all running backs, wide receivers, quarterbacks, and tight ends in the playerprofiler.com database. I highly recommend you do that. And you will find eight running backs in the top 12 and only two wide receivers. That is worst case scenario for zero RB strategy. Running backs with top 12 overall value over streams include David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell, Ezekiel Elliott, DeMarco Murray, LaShawn McCoy, Carlos Hyde, Tevin Coleman, Theo Riddick, and Melvin Gordon. Antonio Brown and T.Y. Hilton are the only wide receivers in the top 12. So when you hit on a running back that's providing your team with a much higher value proposition than when you hit on a wide receiver this year. We are in the midst of a running back renaissance, especially the running backs at the top. Most of the first round running backs have hit. David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell, Ezekiel Elliott, hit, hit, hit. And there's been a simultaneous widening of depth in the wide receiver pool. Because the wide receiver pool is deeper and wider, the value over stream across the wide receiver position has fallen, and the running back Voss has risen across the board. But I'm noticing a funny thing across the fantasy leagues in which I participate, and we're getting interesting feedback from the audience of this show. Zero RB is still working. Zero RB is still the way. Every day. Listeners of this show tweet me at Roto Underworld screenshots of their 5-0 and teams that implemented 0RB. I myself am fielding winning rosters across most of my redraft leagues, all of which implemented 0RB on draft day, because at the end of the day, you still have to pick the right players. And a lot of us that implemented 0RB were drafting Tevin Coleman, Theo Riddick, Melvin Gordon, Jarek McKinnon, and Legarrett blunt All those running backs are in the top 24 running backs on the playerprofiler.com rest of season running back rankings. Oh, we just lost Charles Sims. No problem. Fire up Jonathan Stewart. He faces New Orleans this week. Jonathan Stewart will return to the active lineup and will immediately be a top 25 play facing New Orleans, who's giving up Almost five fantasy points per game above the mean to opposing running backs. So even in the face of worst case scenario, because we were touting the right players in the right rounds, 0RB has still been a success. And the listeners that implemented 0RB across the board have winning records. Why is that? Because when you look at these top 25 running backs, what do you see? Kristen Michael, late round pick. Jordan Howard, free agent acquisition. And very soon, running backs like DeAndre Washington, Devontae Booker, and Dwayne Washington will be posting top 24 weeks. Now pivot to the top 25 wide receivers on the playerprofiler.com full season rankings. What do you see? All name brands. Starting with Antonio Brown at the top, all the way down to Kelvin Benjamin at slot 25, Every one of these wide receivers was drafted in the first 10 rounds. Every single one. You have to continue to scroll down until you get to Terrell Pryor and Quincy Nunwa and Will Fuller outside the top 30. Before you can find the late round wide receivers, those using robust running back were forced to draft in August. Even though three of the four first round running backs have hit. Like 2015 and 2014 and 2013, the running back cohort is more volatile year to year. You do not have a Jordan Howard free agent acquisition in week three rising quickly into the top 10 in the wide receiver cohort. You only see that with the running backs. Because the running back position is much more opportunity dependent than the wide receiver. And most fantasy formats require you to roster and start more wide receivers than running backs. That means the wide receiver is necessarily the fantasy point epicenter of a team. So even in the face of the absolute best case scenario for running back versus wide receiver value. Even in the face of best case scenario. 0RB still gives fantasy gamers the best chance to win. Of course, anyone can win any fantasy league implementing any strategy as long as they pick the right player in every round. Every day that goes by, I hear another fantasy analyst fall back on that well-worn phrase. There are multiple ways to build a successful fantasy team and win a fantasy championship. I don't dispute that. But analytics... Identify probabilities that define possibilities. And 0RB enhances the probability of success for your fantasy team, period. And because so many 0RB rosters have been so successful this year, in the face of worst case scenario, unlike other analysts who abandon the strategy after five weeks, I am more convinced than ever that 0RB gives you the best chance to win a championship. But I've heard from some people that implemented 0RB who are 0-5, and and that happens. Even if your strategy probabilistically gives you the best chance of winning, you can still start the season 0-5, usually because of bad luck. You start the draft with Des Bryant, Keenan Allen, Eric Decker, Danny Woodhead. You're toast. You're 0-5. That's why Player Profiler teamed up with No Halftime. Go to any player page, Terrell Pryor, Cameron Meredith, and you'll see in the center of the page play Terrell Pryor now on No Halftime. Are you now a converted Cameron Meredith believer? Is one of your friends a skeptic? Great. Click on the No Halftime icon on the Cameron Meredith page. Take a minute to set up a No Halftime account. And then send your friend a Cameron Meredith prop bet. Oh, you don't think Cameron Meredith will score 10 fantasy points this week? Put your money where your mouth is. Now, I'm going to put my money where my mouth is, and I'm going to ask Rich Rebar about the RB renaissance that we are experiencing in fantasy football and how that could impact 0RB moving forward. Follow Rich at Lord on Twitter. I'm excited to hear about what he has to say about this phenomenon and his philosophy on successful league-winning Roster Construction Concepts. So now, let's go talk to Rich. Welcome to the Roto Underworld radio program. Rich Rebar from Roto World. Lord Reeves, in the house. Talk
1: to me. Oh, Matt. Um, you know, here we are, you know, middle of October, closing in on week six, which is basically a third of the NFL season, almost halfway through our fantasy regular season. So I'm just so tired. I'm just all, all I can think about is how tired I am already. Here we are, you know, only at the halfway jaunt, you know, and I've got to pick up pick up some steam here uh, to get
0: going. It is the halfway jaunt because really our season starts August one. The redraft season starts in earnest, and we're two and a half months through it, and we have two and a half months to go. So we are in the eye of the fantasy football hurricane. A lot of teams are two and three, three and two, need a win this week. So we're gonna go ahead and not talk about any of the upcoming <laughs> matchups. <laughs> We'll talk about particular players that we're interested in, situations we're interested in, phenomenon we're interested in, but we're not going through the week six matchups. There are plenty of other fantasy football podcasts where you can peruse the matchups. First things first, Tevin Coleman, he's been incredible. He's been a top 10 fantasy running back in all formats, getting a less than 50% opportunity share. He's been essentially the most efficient running back in the league, but I'm hearing now is the time to sell high on Tevin Coleman. In fact, Mike Clay recommended trading Tevin Coleman straight up for Eddie Lacy. Two questions for you would you trade Tevin Coleman for Eddie Lacy? And second of all, how do you feel about the lateral move trade? I have a running back. Can I have your running back? Let's exchange running backs.
1: Yeah, I'm not really one for the one-versus-one trades. I was tweeting about this a a while ago. I'm not really one for for position-for-position trades. I mean, the goal of trades should be to change your your team structure. You need to to actually pick up something. So you're looking to trade running back depth for a wide receiver or do a two-for-one because you have depth that's already either had a buy um, or that you're just not using, and to make it a position upgrade. When you're just trading position-for-position, it's a clear win-loss trade for a team. So when you enter trade negotiations with that premise already of someone's losing, that's just – that's not the right way to go about trades. You shouldn't be trying to hoodwink owners. Uh, I mean you you should be trying to win trades absolutely. But if you're going into trade negotiations with I just want to win the trade, you're probably not going to be a guy that makes a lot of good trades or makes a lot of successful trades. Um, So I mean uh, going over to this one, like not not even pandering to my audience here and to the host (laughs) – uh, but no, I would not trade Tevin Coleman for Eddie Lacy. I mean, it's actually probably a, a trade I likely probably wouldn't do from either side. But like, since it was proposed as owning Tevin Coleman, like let's attack it from that angle. While I like Eddie Lacy and his upcoming schedule, like let's lay this out. Lacy has already been playing well and is yet to finish a week higher than PPR RB twenty four. I mean, sure some TDs are going to come, but his overall usage within the usage of his offense caps his ceiling more on the surface than things lead on. Lacey runs almost no pass routes per game. He's at 11.4 routes per game. He was at 10.7 routes per game last season. He posted career low in receiving output last year with just 50 uh, receiving points. For context, he had 109 receiving points in 2014 when he was the RB6, so he lost more than half. Um, And even when Lacey starts finding the paint, I don't view him as an RB1. Now with Coleman, you're clearly getting more points now than you should be getting based on the uh, overall touches and the construct of his offense compared to other RB1s in fantasy. But the types of touches he's getting are more valuable for fantasy than strictly getting a bunch of carries in between the 20s and just highlighting touch numbers and he has three or more catches in every game so far even with a baseline output of say uh, seven yards per catch um he that's worth roughly nine and a half carries ready lacy uh in comparison and we haven't even taken into account yet that his team is Shown that they're consistently trying to create and manufacture opportunities for him in, in different ways. And if Devontae Freeman were to ever go down, like Kevin Coleman could be in a situation comparable to David Johnson. Uh, so you have a top five running back, you know, so he's already giving you points and still has an avenue to be an even better running back uh, just through how his team's using creatively. And if there was an injury to the incumbent guy uh, that he shares backfield with. Yeah, I would certainly not trade Tevin Coleman for Eddie Lacy in a PPR league.
0: Tevin Coleman, twenty-one targets this year. Eddie Lacy, twenty-eight targets all of last year and fifteen games played. So let's hit the game show wrong answer sound. We're not doing that trade.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we, I mean, buy low, sell high stuff is so I mean, it's so monotonous. I mean, I get it. It's so it's so just such low hanging fruit to offer uh, as analysis. But it's not always, you know, you've got to go underneath uh, underneath the hood. A lot of a lot of capacities here. I buy high, sell
0: low. I sell low before the guy has no value. And I sell high when a guy is on an upward trajectory, but owners aren't quite sure what they have yet. Well, I go to playerprofiler.com. I look up the guy. I figure out what he is, and I trade for him at that moment. Yeah. There is one buy low that I like right now. That's Alshon Jeffrey. However, your colleagues at Roto World disagree. The people at Roto World can't shovel dirt on Alshon Jeffrey fast enough. (laughs) I read today that his days
1: as a wide receiver one could be over rich.
0: Is that true?
1: No, I don't think so. I mean, look at at Alshon. Like we said, let's go under the hood a little bit. I mean, he's fourth in the NFL in yards per target. He's got a 71% catch rate. The problem is, is he's forty fifth, tied for forty fifth in targets. I mean, he's still balling. He's just not getting targets. Um, a lot of that of the problem is because Brian Hoyer, I've compared now to the to the Derek Zoolander of NFL QBs. <laughs> uh, only twenty, only twenty eight point six percent of Hoyer's pass attempts have gone to the left side of the field. That's the second lowest mark in the league outside of Cody Kessler. Guess who's running fifty five percent of the routes on the left side of the field? Oh no! Yeah, it's oh. Alshon Jeffrey. Uh, so, I mean, that's part of the problem. I mean, he's running. He's been hobbled. Uh, but, you know, he's got – played hobbled and performed as well. Hell, he's performing now with the opportunity he's getting. Um, he's run into some better cornerback matchups so far. But, I mean, the big problem is he's just not getting the looks. Look what he's done with all the targets he's got. Um, he, so, I mean, I'm still on board with Alshon. I'd still like to buy him. I would like to see – Uh, Brian Hoyer start to be able to turn left a little bit or or them move or them just move Alshon to the right that would be cool too has anyone been to Vegas before
0: have you been at the craps table where someone rolled a seven five times in a row I've been at a roulette table where it came up 13 five times in a row I was there. I had 13. It was, I had a picture of this. It was great. <laughs> there was a crowd gathered around as I continued to hit 13. It really happened. I swear to God. Alshon Jeffrey has faced Houston, top five pass defense. Philadelphia, top five pass defense. Dallas, top five pass defense. Well, then he gets a respite, right? Against Detroit's non-top five pass defense, except Darius Slay was shadowing him the entire game. Whoa, fine, 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 fine. At least he gets Indianapolis in week five. Oh, except Vontae Davis (laughs) was shadowing him the entire game in week five. So then he's either facing a nest of pit vipers pass defense or he has an anaconda wrapped around him in the form of Darius Slay or Vontae Davis. It happens. By random chance, he happened to draw really bad cards for the first five hands of the season.
1: Oh, fucking well, Rich. <laughs> yeah, We almost saw this happen to the start, too, with T.Y. Hilton, you know, the first couple weeks, and he caught that long pass that last to end the game against Jason Ferret, and then he's been, you know, blowing up since. I mean, he was a guy I was trying to get, like, after two and three weeks, because he ran into, like, just a, a perfect storm of a start of opponents, too, and yeah, I think Alshon's going to get going. I mean, he's a guy I would love to, to be able to pick up if I can. I mean, unfortunately, I own him in a bunch of leagues already. Well, thank God for
0: Roto World helping to depress his value, doubting whether he'll ever be a W you are
1: one again. Thank you, your colleagues over at Roto World. Hey, those guys didn't like Demarco Murray either. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. I'm rich. <laughs> hey, those are my brethren. It's all right. <laughs> hey, man. it's like it's like in the house when you got the pillows on the floor. Some brothers got to tussle once in a while. But <laughs> that's right. That's right. Roto World propping up
0: player values since 2004. <laughs> We talked earlier about Tevin Coleman. Tevin Coleman played New Orleans a couple weeks ago in a pass-catching role primarily. This week, Fozzie Whitaker faces New Orleans in a pass-catching role. I know, I understand that Jonathan Stewart is back, but he's back after a significant layoff. Fozzie seems like a reasonable streamer to me in this incredible matchup.
1: Yeah, I, I call the, the Superdome the Coors Field of the NFL. Yes. Now, I mean, if you look since the start of last year, uh, the average combined point totals in 66 points there with just uh just twice they've been under 50 at the low of 45. So I mean, there's points to be had. I like him as a as a PPR flex guy or like a if you're really hurting uh, at running back and you have like a McKinnon on buy or someone you know uh, you were you invested in the Bucs situation and they're on buy in
0: GPPs. He's a great punt RB, too.
1: Yeah, he, he could be. Uh, I, like I, I, The problem with Fozzie Whitaker is that he doesn't possess the ceiling that a guy like Coleman has because he lacks the touchdown juice. I mean, Fozzie has just one touch inside the 10 all season. He scored just three touchdowns over his two and a half years in Carolina. That's the only like thing holding me back. But if you're telling me that I could still get a nice flex play floor out of my believe in this game, with the upside for more, you never know when those touchdowns are going to come, when one can pop up. But I don't think three are coming.
0: Week four, nine targets, 92 yards, 18.2 fantasy points. I think the presence of Jonathan Stewart is essentially going to marginalize Cameron Artis Payne but I think Fozzie Whitaker is here to stay as the satellite back in Carolina and I think that depending on the matchup he can be usable in deep leagues and he can be a usable punt RB2 in DFS GPPs we also talked earlier about the lack of receptions for Eddie Lacy the distribution of targets in Green Bay has become incredibly difficult to project and whenever I'm perplexed by the target distribution, for example. I always blame the quarterback and I already dislike Aaron Rodgers because he belittles Jeff Janice publicly whenever given the opportunity. <laughs> Be honest.
1: Do you think that Aaron Rodgers is a douche? I mean, he's not as big a douche as people that have spent fifth round draft picks on him, but I mean I think it's I think it's it's highly possible. <laughs> <laughs> Spades are spades. Like, what quarterbacks aren't douches? We, we probably have a shorter list we say which quarterbacks aren't douches. Well, that's true. <laughs> you know what? That is
0: fair because most of these quarterbacks, their egos are in such a place that they can't be normal human beings. They're essentially the rock stars of sports, and they have been surrounded by sycophants since they were in high school. Of course, they're going to belittle the people around them. Yeah. When quarterbacks do not act that way, when they are down to earth, that's what catches you off guard. It's not the guys that act like douches. That's par for the course. Great
1: point. We watch Tom Brady every Sunday, man. That dude goes he goes haywire on everyone. Like, man, He does things that are so much more outrageous than like Cam Newton does, but <laughs> you never hear about it. There are
0: very few <laughs> down-to-earth quarterbacks in the NFL. As I'm cycling
1: through in my head... Would you ever play pickup basketball with Tom Brady? He would just ruin the game for everyone. Like, He's the dude where it's like, you know, we're not going to play anymore. He seems like a petulant <laughs> pickup basketball player. <laughs> I think that Drew Brees
0: seems like a regular guy outside of football maybe he's not maybe he's a dick to waiters and waitresses and and bartenders I'm not sure but if I had to pick one quarterback in the league that I think is genuinely down to earth off the field it would be Drew Brees
1: I like that I like that call I think yeah I think he's just like a guy that's pretty pretty content with life you know Right, and I think that Tony Romo has been
0: humbled as well, based on hatred that has been (laughs) beamed at him by sports fans around the world for a decade. Now, there's been some hatred beamed at Devontae Adams the last couple years, by fantasy gamers in particular, but I'm looking at the advanced metrics, Rich. Devontae Adams? It's painful to admit, but he's been the most efficient wide receiver on Green Bay. You invented a metric called Target X in your days at XN Sports, and it's become Target Premium on playerprofiler.com, which is the percentage of fantasy points per target that a particular wide receiver accumulates above and beyond the other wide receivers in the passing game. Devontae Adams plus 26% target premium this year. That's number 15 in the league. He's slowly turning the efficiency corner. And I have to admit, I might start to buy
1: Hey man, this this is why you gotta be objective, man, no matter what. You can't you can't take lock. We always talk about it all the time, especially on a third year guy. I thought last I thought it was very peculiar that everyone is handing out hall passes to the entire Green Bay offense this offseason for last year, but no one was giving the Devontae Adams one at all. Like we literally made an excuse for every player in that offense because we're like, Oh, we'll throw it back, they'll get Jory Nelson back, everyone will be great. But no one's like, Hey, nope, no, nope. we we're just like, ah, no, Devontae Adams, he's pretty bad, whatever. I mean, not that he's a world beater, but I think we can safely assume Uh, that he's not the guy you purchased in the middle of the first round of rookie drafts. Uh, but he's seen seven or more targets in three or four games this season. He scored a touchdown in three as well. I mean, if Rodgers, you know, miraculously kind of gets humming, like we know he's capable of when the schedule lightens up, which is why everyone wants to by Eddie Lacy in the first place. Maybe it helps the passing game, not Eddie Lacy. Um, You know, those wide receiver 30 to 40 weeks are going to turn into wide receiver 20 to 31s, you know, if, if that takes off. But, yeah, I and mean, he's a guy that you probably waited too long because he scored in a primetime matchup last week. So, you know, he was a guy I picked up. I know in a lot of, like, home leagues I'm in where, he was available like people got picked him up like right away after that you know um you score you score on Sunday night you know hey I saw you I mean it's the same way I saw Jack Quiz Rogers get picked up in like every league on Tuesday it's <laughs> but yeah I think he's a guy that you you know you can hedge on and get uh production you get tied into a quarterback that everyone is still going to trot out there every week as a, a top five option you know in their heads and rankings
0: Let's pivot back to the running back position. Talked about this before you came on. The running back position has become a fantasy point stronghold, particularly those running backs at the top. Fantasy points per game by running backs are up across the board. And we talked about this all offseason. It appears that we are in the midst of a full blown NFL running back renaissance. If you agree, how does that impact zero
1: RB strategy? I'm still a little on the fence. I mean, like I said, we have eight running backs averaging 15 PPR points per game right now to zero wide receivers. Um, but only half of those running backs still were guys, you know, taken in the first three rounds. So I mean, it's kind of fairly similar to where the top half of the top ten wide receivers in point per game are, kind of like half. So I mean, we can snow globe things up and come away with the you know, anecdotal roster examples that can support any draft tactic we want. But you know, I still believe that your defenses are more prepared to guard against busting out on draft picks when taking a wide receiver heavy approach. I still believe that the numbers still bear that out and. Um, you know that's not a full defense of zero RB either though it's more just emphasizing on using the allotment of draft capital on the resource you require the most that's what I believe about we talked about this last time I was on the show with you uh, the element of zero RB that I think gets misrepresented in the community uh, the most is the one that has really nothing to do with running backs at all or how they're performing uh, you know it's about attempting to you know insulate your draft and not draft with arrogance or having the false pretense that you have the clairvoyance of what will transpire over the full season that's what it is it's i feel like people argue the element of uh, they they bring up the argument against running backs as the crutch your rb when it's not really the point of why i like to draft wide receiver heavy and there are a lot of wide receiver heavy drafts that i had where i still took a running back early it's just that i took running you know wall flooded wide receivers afterwards still too um but, yeah, I mean, listen, touchdowns have been going up in the NFL for, you know, basically a decade in a row, and rushing touchdowns weren't following suit. There was going to be eventually a, a point where that bridge, like, met. Like, we, we met that fork in the road. I was like, hey, if we're going to keep scoring X amount of touchdowns, there, and we're going to keep scoring more the next year, like, eventually rushing touchdowns are going to come along for the ride. And that's, I think, what we're seeing to start the year. Yeah, a lot of those running backs at the top, the Carlos Hydes, the Melvin Gordons, I mean, those guys aren't particularly stacking, like, incredible weekly games they're just finding the paint a lot
0: right melvin gordon 1.0 yards after contact per touch that's number 40 in the nfl his production premium which is our situation agnostic efficiency metric how is he performing on any given down and distance plus 6.2 that's outside the top 25 why is melvin gordon scoring 19.2 fantasy points per game 24 red zone carries There's still a question about how
1: good Melvin Gordon actually is, is there not? Well, I and many weren't intoxicated by Gordon as a prospect, and it's more to fair to question where the charges acquired him. Uh, And. So what is future dynasty value lies as well? I think that's still very much in question. I mean, this is a team that kind of just isn't built to run, though, at all. I mean, they were terrible without Gordon last year. They were terrible in 2014 without Gordon. So it's not like we can, like, blame him solely for the Chargers being inept at, you know, rushing matriculation. Um, so, I mean, it's it's kind of like a the, the book is still out. And I don't think that this first, you know, six-week sample is enough to say in the other direction that he's good either. You know, th- like you said, you laid out. I think it's it's still kind of like he's not in a situation to really nourish a lot of rushing, you know, productive volume. Uh, as you would say, like he's not a guy that's going to get a lot of stack, a lot of rushing yardage, no matter how many carries he gets, really. It's, he's always, I think he's going to have a crappy yard per carry no matter what the rest of the year because I feel like anyone would in this situation. I don't think there's a lot of backs that would have a high yard per carry, but I mean. I I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, (laughs) you're probably not looking at that top five uh, rookie pick value, though I think the rest of the way out for his career, I think that's probably in jeopardy. Look at Melvin Gordon's college
0: profile. Incredible. Top five rushing seasons of all time in college football during his time at Wisconsin. Anytime you can roll up more than 2,500 rushing yards in a season, that's prolific and incredibly impressive. However, his workout metrics Good, not great. From 40 time, burst score, speed score, agility score, nothing above the 75th percentile. So it was argued when he was coming out of Wisconsin that he was an elite compiler, maybe the best compiler in the history of college football. And when you look at the efficiency metrics in 2015 and now 2016, he's starting to look like your prototypical fantasy RB2, not your RB1. He looks like a situation-dependent player who's adequate in all phases, but he's not a game-breaker. If I were starting a franchise today, I would rather have a Tevin Coleman, someone who can win a football game for me. I would take him over someone like Melvin Gordon. When you look at that Chargers roster, the one thing we know is that the San Diego Chargers are adept at scoring points. They find themselves in the red zone a lot, hence the 4.8 red zone carries per game for Melvin Gordon, which then begs the question, if Melvin Gordon gets hurt, who's next? And on playerprofiler.com, we have a depth charts section at the top. Click on the depth charts section, and I think we can all agree that if Melvin Gordon gets hurt, Dexter McCluster's not going to handle the majority of the work. (laughs) However, there is a running back behind Melvin Gordon who has interesting measurables who could step into the role that Melvin Gordon is currently playing on a one-for-one basis and continue to be one of the league leaders in red zone touches if Melvin Gordon goes down. His name is Kenneth Farrow. Do you have an opinion of Kenneth Farrow?
1: Yeah, I mean, he was a guy that was real interesting uh, throughout the draft process. He was a guy that didn't get drafted. I don't think he went to the combine either. I think he just had a pro day. If I'm, I mean, am I, am I wrong about that? I don't remember.
0: Kenneth Farrow was not invited to the combine. He went to his pro day, and he jumped really high, yeah. and he was incredibly agile for his size, 5'9", 218.
1: Yeah, he's a bigger guy. I think he definitely can, based on what we've seen from I think he can give you Melvin Gordon numbers. I mean, currently, like I said, I mean, right now, like we just laid it out what why Melvin Gordon is good, and Farrell's a guy can catch the ball, too. Uh, I mean, even right now, Melvin Gordon's sitting on 11 carries for 19 yards in this game that is happening right now. Uh, I definitely think that you could get that from just about anyone that takes the spot. Um, the problem with rostering him right now is you, you need a clear injury, and we're at the point of the season where we said, like, we've got a couple weeks away where we got bad back-to-back 16 bye weeks. Uh, so, I mean, after that, I'm fine with stashing him. Um, you probably not; they don't have enough roster leeway at the moment to get through that stretch. I mean, if you do, if you're in a deeper league, if you're in a 16-teamer and you have uh, deeper benches, maybe like eight slots or more, I mean, you can do it now. Um, but that afterwards, after you clear the bye weeks, that's when you start taking your your handcuff stashes and your guys to load up on. That's when you do it. Um, so if you can, if you have the luxury to do it now, yeah, he's a guy you can, you can, you can stick on rosters. And if Melvin Gore wants to go down, um, he, he, I think, give you just about the same production Melvin Gordon is giving you. That's the floor.
0: <laughs> that's it. He has the requisite size and athleticism to essentially give you what Melvin Gordon's given you one for one. If Melvin Gordon gets hurt, and that's a great point about the bye weeks. And I have an additional game theory management issue that I personally have to deal with. I'm in a handful of leagues in which I am the designated expert in the league. (laughs) We have a number of Roto Underworld leagues. So here's the problem, Rich. I can't just pick up Kenneth Farrow on the off chance that Melvin Gordon gets hurt and then drop him next week and then pick him up two weeks later. Mm -hmm. If I make a move on a guy in the leagues I'm in, it gets noticed, and there's these parasites in my leagues (laughs) who will just vacuum him up because I rostered him for a week, and that means he must be good. And that's just purely
1: annoying. (laughs) mean <laughs> hey, that happens when you're when you know you, you're you're unearthing these diamonds. Like you've been hot, man, this offseason. So I mean, it happens, man. It's, it's it's a good problem to have, to be honest. Uh, it means you're doing your job, and people want to piece they want to piece that silver and gold, man. We have been hot. That's a fact. Anunua and then
0: <laughs> Cameron and Meredith. I mean, come on. I mean, come on. I mean, that's just woo. He's on fire. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Who's not on fire, the Houston Texans front office. (laughs) Not on fire. As cold as it gets. Hey, they drafted Will Fuller. They did draft Will Fuller, so they hit a jump shot from the top of the key. They did. They're one for 13 or whatever it is lately. (laughs) Not doing well. They could have taken Treadwell. (laughs) Oh, my God. Imagine that. Imagine if they had taken Treadwell. (laughs) (laughs) a slower, less competent version of DeAndre Hopkins. At least with Will Fuller, he has tactical value. Even if he's not a great football player, he's the perfect talent profile to complement DeAndre Hopkins. If they had taken another big flanker, a redundant asset to DeAndre Hopkins, that just would have been it. I mean, that would have made my head literally explode. But my head was already a balloon about to explode right on the edge. One more puff of air, and it was going to explode after they signed Brock Osweiler to a mega contract. (laughs) And now look at him. We saw this. Anyone that's familiar with the Brock Osweiler career arc knew that was a catastrophic mistake for that franchise to walk willingly into quarterback
1: purgatory
0: how did that happen
1: Yeah, i mean ironically from a team that was in the window let him go like a team that was in the window Championship window clearly there, but the QB thirst man, it's real. I mean, considering how Houston lost in the playoffs last season too, it was this is a completely what the teams do. They overreact. Brian Hoyer had that just epic meltdown against the Chiefs. So what's the what? Hey man, he is all his fault. This is all his fault. So we'll fix it all by just going and getting someone better than him. We just have someone better than him, you our heads. But when you look at Brock, I mean, I tweet out those. I always do those QB uh, per drive metrics per yes. week, and I tweeted that out. He's only ahead of Case Keenum. That's it. Like, Case Keenum, he's the, he's the only quarterback. Like, he's better than, like, in, like, almost every per drive metric, he's better than Case Keenum. So that's, like, what they got. Like, he's below Cody Kessler, below Blaine Gabbert. Like, that's what they signed for, you know, $75 million or $16 million guaranteed this year and whatever. I mean, I hope that we see more teams in, in first of, like, what this – the other side of this equation was that hopefully we see more teams approach this in a similar way like Denver did going forward. Um, you know, th- this isn't me saying that top shelf QBs aren't important. I mean, they most certainly are, um, but they are increasingly more scarce, and the collegiate level isn't producing the position like some old heads perceive the position should be played or drafted or even approached anymore. So you have this, you have where the NFL is trying to catch up. We've seen it, like a guy with Dak Prescott this year. If you put these guys in an environment where they exceed. We saw it with Colin Kaepernick in 2012, and we we found out what the player count Kyle Kaepernick was but if you put these guys in a situation to harness the, their strengths uh, good things can happen you don't need a perfect you know guy because they're not coming out in the NFL anymore um so, I mean, yeah, I would like to see more teams approach it, you know, like that way and, you know, take guys in the second and third round, take multiple guys and, you know, give these guys shots and, and try to run into guys that way instead of just, the, uh, he's not what we, looks like a quarterback, what we've known to be a quarterback forever, so therefore he can't be one. You know, I I, I, I like what, what Elway and those guys did. He knew that, like I said, their window was there and they weren't going to overpay and compromise the future of that window by, you know, trying to stay in the window for just one year with Brock Osweiler.
0: Brock Osweiler, 3.9 air yards per attempt this year.
1: With Will Fuller!
0: (laughs) 34th in the league. Anytime your air yards per attempt is below four, that is a catastrophe. Yeah, and he said he's got guys! And he has Will Fuller and DeAndre Hopkins. There's no excuse. Another team that doesn't know how to accumulate quarterback talent or any talent whatsoever. You could argue they're the most talent-depleted team in the league. It's the Miami Dolphins. (laughs) Look at what the Dallas Cowboys did. They knew that Tony Romo was aging and falling apart. So what did they do? They drafted Dak Prescott, who we had as a top-five quarterback in this class because he had one of the best College QBRs of any quarterback in the class, and he was mobile. So touting Dak Prescott before the draft was a pretty straightforward proposition, even if we don't have the skeleton key to unlock to evaluate quarterbacks as well as we can evaluate wide receivers. No one saw this Carson Wentz immediate ascendance coming. But look at what Miami did at the quarterback position in the draft. Brandon Doughty? Is that how you pronounce his name? Doughty? Brandon Doughty from Western Kentucky? (laughs) Yeah, he's like 26. (laughs) That's a wasted pick. You don't wait until the seventh round to take a quarterback when your starter is Ryan Tannehill. Wait till they extend Ryan Tannehill. (laughs) The Dolphins' inability to self-scout or scout other players is why they're the most talent-deficient team in the league. They can't scout college players, they can't evaluate free agents, and they can't self-scout. So when you can't do any of those things, your team needs a missed field goal in order to get its one victory against the Browns. So there's no way that the Miami Dolphins are going to be in contention for the next few years because like the Houston Texans, they are in quarterback purgatory and there's no light at the end of the tunnel at this point. And the solution is not to bring in the quarterback Ah. whisperer coach. Mark Trestman was just fired after week five. He was the second offensive coordinator fired after the Bills' Greg Roman. But I heard that Mark Trestman was a quarterback whisperer, was an offensive genius, that he understood the proper run-pass ratio to maximize NFL offensive efficiency And what? And what? And what? He's gone. And fantasy analysts can no longer start every paragraph with the preposition in a Trestman offense because he's not there anymore. And now I'm wondering how this Adam Gaze is going to survive in Miami with Ryan Tannehill as his quarterback. When you take a step back as a fantasy analyst and you look at what's going on in Houston you look at what's going on in Miami I don't even know who Houston's offensive coordinator is he can't be a quarterback whisperer because I haven't seen any fantasy football articles start with a preposition in the offensive coordinator from Houston x offense so he's clearly not a whisperer Adam Gaze was a whisperer I don't think he's a whisperer anymore it was easy to be a whisperer when you had Peyton Manning as your quarterback now it's not so easy to be a whisperer when you have a converted wide receiver receiver who's never been a good quarterback in his career and he's in year six of a failed experiment he's not going to be a quarterback whisperer regardless as a fantasy community can we look at what's happened with Mark Tressman and what's happened to offensive coordinators from Chip Kelly all the way back to Mike Martz All this touting of players based on offensive coordinators that happens in fantasy football. Is it time? Can we just bury that style of analysis?
1: I hope so. It was something we touched upon last time I was on, too.
0: It doesn't stop, Rich. Just because we talk about it doesn't mean it stops.
1: Well, all we can do is our part. Hopefully, someone finds finds those words, and they they he. If one person finds them, that's we did our part, I guess. I mean, ironically, to your point, I think that there were Bill O'Brien tight end whisperer talks uh, when he got the job uh, at that at, at that point. No way, no way,
0: because of Gronkowski. <laughs>
1: I love it. Yeah, that was reality for a period there. I mean, we talked about false coaching, you know, credit being doled out, like I said, last time. Uh, Trestman, the QB whisperer, was one of the more loony narratives, too. I mean, through 18 years of being an offensive coordinator, assistant head coach, or head coach... Uh, his QBs have produced just eight top 12 scoring seasons, so that's not even half. And four of the top five were from Rich Gannon and Steve Young, with teams littered with Hall of Famers at the skill spots. And even in Chicago, when the Whispers uh, started because of Josh McCown, they were throwing to Brandon Marshall, Alshon Jeffrey, and Matt Forte coming out of the backfield, but none of those cats fit that narrative. Uh, we, we retrofitted Tressman backwards into those guys being good instead, which made no damn sense yes. uh, whatsoever. Um, mm <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think that co- there's a level where coaching matters, and you can see like guys getting people into the right spots. But like, you got to be good at football still. Uh, like, dudes aren't just making like terrible players good at football. And I think that's what people try to retrofit that coaching analysis into fantasy analysis. Uh, you know, saying a guy like you know like Hugh Jackson's gonna make Robert Griffin good again, or you know, he, you know Duke Johnson's gonna catch a hundred balls now because of Hugh Jackson, and this is gonna have you know not just throw Hugh Jackson's name in there. He's just all pop. My head right there, um, but yeah, Mike Martz was a great example when he bounced around all those spots. I mean, Trustman even this hey, man Trustman got fired with all those awesome skill players too in Chicago. So I mean, that happened as well. So I mean, yeah, listen, it's it's all about players. So if you're not starting your player analysis off with the player first, then you're doing it backwards. You're hustling backwards. There is a collective amnesia with these offensive coordinators. Even
0: when they get fired, we still view them as geniuses, as whisperers. I think there's a chance that Mark Trestman is, is so fantasy football Teflon-coded that if he lands an offensive coordinator gig again— there will be efforts to restart that narrative engine. You watch for it, Rich. You watch for it. You know it's gonna happen. You know it's gonna happen.
1: It's a hundred percent too. And if you look at Tressman's like body of work too, like he his team's almost always crater the second year or two in the system. like almost every. it's almost like clockwork. The second year they always tank almost. Like you can just go back and look at all all of his history. Like his teams always fall off. Oh, so you guys
0: are so smart with your fantasy analysis. You don't fall for false narratives, and you just look at the numbers. Well, congratulations, Matt and Rich. Well, Rich, was there a player or a team this offseason that you got dead wrong?
1: Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. I got all. I mean, listen, I make all kinds of mistakes. I get all kinds of guys wrong. The wrongest. Oh, let me introduce you to my Michael Floyd shares this season. <laughs> yeah, I mean this is this cat's only played forty four percent and thirty-three percent of snaps now the last two weeks. I mean, he's kinda of being phased out of his own system for a guy uh Jerron Brown, who was like who played behind a bunch of dudes in college, uh was not the elite pedigree receiver that Michael Floyd was. Um, but Michael Floyd looks lost on the field and he's on it. I mean he's dropping passes just by every chance he gets. I think
0: we can say now with definitive certainty that Michael Floyd is not a player who's strong at the catch point. He lacks the necessary concentration and hand-eye coordination to secure catches in traffic, and to come down with the football in contested situations. This is not a skill that you can learn. And while I love the Michael Floyd prospect profile, one of the best wide receivers in the college football ranks we've seen in a long time, checks all the boxes. We love size, speed, epic producer, exciting measurables, upper percentile, height-adjusted speed score, everything. But there are cases in which Even the players that check all the boxes coming out of college... And are given chance after chance after chance in the nfl because they were first round draft picks and nfl front offices and nfl coaches see what we see they see the exciting talent it's there with michael floyd but sometimes the light just never comes on for them and we will be chasing that thousand yard sophomore season for the rest of his career as fantasy gamers
1: yeah i think so and i mean part of it too was like the, the back half compared to what fits did in that back half i thought it was wheels up. I did, man. It got me again. Yeah, he <laughs> completely got me. Hoodwinked me. And like I said the same thing about uh Lamar Miller. You know, I he's a guy I was he was one of the running backs I was kind of heavily investing in in the front. And you listen know, so all we talked about while Lamar Miller is in Miami is like all this cat needs is touches. We just gotta get him touches. Well he's getting the touches. And we ain't getting the and we ain't getting the points. <laughs> so many touches.
0: Just touches and touches and touches. Just a fire hose of touches.
1: And, and yeah, I mean, it, it, it could get well. Those touches could mean something against Indian Hell. If they don't, then I don't know what to do going forward. But I mean, I, I love the narrative. Even as a guy, I want to look for excuses to like Lamar Miller going forward. Now, as a guy that invested into him, but I love my favorite is the one that is blaming the Houston offensive line uh, th- when this dude was in Miami for the past three years and we were hyping him up. Like you know, like I, we can't we can't blame the Houston offensive line when he was producing behind the Miami offensive line. Like that doesn't. Doesn't really work uh you know we're, we're kind of just making excuses to make excuses at that point i mean i hope he gets it going into the touches when the schedule lightens up and maybe he can just find the end zone in like a melvin gordon type fashion that's what i'm hoping for now that he just turns into like a volume guy that can find the paint because i don't think that we've seen the ceiling type to performer, the splash plays that we saw that were we thought were going to happen in miami if you just give them touches i don't think that that guy is is there that this year i don't know if you're going to get that at all I don't know what he is. We knew he
0: wasn't a great short yardage back, and we're seeing it. Eight red zone carries this year, no touchdowns. We also knew he wasn't a great receiver. We're seeing that as well. 80% snap share, only 14 receptions, 2.8 receptions per game. If you are going to be getting bell cow level opportunity and you're producing less than three receptions per game. We live in a PPR world, and that's not good enough to be an RB1 in fantasy, and sure enough, his 11.9 fantasy points per game is outside the top 25. I would argue that in dynasty leagues in particular, this is a make-or-break week against Indianapolis. Indianapolis is a renowned soft run defense, a light front And if he cannot gash that run defense at 25 years old, the peak of his career at the age apex and dynasty, he's a hard sell in all formats if he flails against the Colts.
1: Yeah, I think so too. I mean, he was a guy like yeah. I said I just looked at the big picture of the running back landscape, and I, so what I looked at was him gonna get a bunch of touches in the apex. We talked about prime, 25 years old, going to a new environment It's gonna be great. He's gonna have weapons on the outside. Everything's gonna be fine. Like it's gonna be all right. This is a, this is something I want to invest in. Plays in the AFC South. Something I want to invest in.
0: <laughs> and we just had <laughs> all the external forces were lining up in his favor, Rich.
1: Oh yeah I was I was there and I mean like I said the schedule does get better but I mean I don't think that this kind of situation we've seen similar to San Diego except for it's with a bad quarterback like they just might not be built to run and be able to and they might not be able to, like I said with the quarterback play there might not be able to set him up with the opportunities uh, the scoring opportunities Like you touch these eight red zone carries it was two inside the 10 and the closest one came from the three yard line so far in the season so I mean you've got to get some bunnies. Your offense has to generate some bunnies for if you're a running back. That just is. That's what playing the running back position is about. You know, that's uh, part of being in your offense as well. Um, so I mean, that that's something that probably feels compromised going out from the rest of the year out. We've talked about Brock Osweiler being only better than Case Keenum. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think if you have him now, like, really all you can do is hold and hope he either pops this week. Um, yeah, it, it, There's nothing you could do. Yeah, you're not going to – I mean, you're, you're talking like 50 cents in the dollar or someone trying to just buy the schedule, which happens in trades. People do try to buy schedules instead of players in, in trades. That's another thing that really happens.
0: No, <laughs> oh, it does happen. That's the case for Eddie Lacy that we talked about earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Put yourself in the shoes of a defensive coordinator you're facing the Houston Texans this week. Who are you scared of? What's your game plan? I have three linebackers, Rich. What am I going to do with those linebackers? I'm going to blitz them. Why? Am I afraid of their slot receiver? No, I don't know who that is. Am I afraid of their tight end? Ryan Griffin, CJ Fedorowitz? No, I'm not afraid of that. Anyone in those intermediate routes close to the line of scrimmage, I'm not afraid of. So what am I going to do? Pressure Brock Osweiler. We know he doesn't perform well in the face of pressure and we know that lamar miller is a threat to score on any given play so what do you do as a defensive coordinator shut down the run lanes and in the process pressure brock osweiler because the texans don't have the personnel to hurt you in that section of the field where the linebackers operate suddenly as an offensive coordinator for the texans you're in an impossible situation the opportunities are being funneled to players in situations
1: they can't succeed. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, totally. I totally agree with you. I mean, that's pretty, pretty much, don't have anything to tack on to that because that's, just the, that's pretty much the nuts of the situation.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know what to say, but I don't know what to say to DeAndre Hopkins owners. I don't know what to say to Lamar Miller owners. Well, there was clairvoyance
1: on the Hopkins thing.
0: The only owners out there that have a shred of hope are the Will Fuller owners who may get a long touchdown any given week.
1: Yeah, I mean, he and he was a guy that was in the 13th round, you know, too. So there's, you know, you're getting your house money with Will Fuller anyways already. And I mean, with Fuller, Will Fuller, too, I mean, that, that's one. Will Fuller was a classic guy where you just get caught up into the three-month minutiae of tearing guys down uh, because this is a guy that was no, did nothing but produce touchdowns and create his own touchdowns. Like, he wasn't a guy that just scored a lot of touchdowns in the system or um, – you know, the offense he was in because the quarterback, I mean, he was a guy that creates his own touchdowns either by long speed or and he was really good after their catch. And we've already seen him be awesome after the catch on screens and stuff this year. I mean, he's what, like, yeah, seeing a guy could create his own touchdowns, why wouldn't you want a guy like that? But, I mean, like, yeah, there was some clairvoyance on the Hopkins thing. Like, a lot of us knew that there was no – like, that was a perfect storm of, like, he was not going to flirt with, like, 160 targets. Like, everyone knew that coming in. I mean, and Hopkins is a good player. I, I love DeAndre Hopkins. He's a guy I have on – dynasty teams and liked coming out of that class uh but yeah we knew that it was that, that front half uh, of 2015 wasn't happening again
0: myself rich and others in our circle we knew when we were in expert drafts
1: who the marks were
0: because those players were drafting deandre hopkins in the first round we it, we knew it while it was happening and we winked at each other and shook our heads will
1: fuller <laughs> then i took alshon jeffrey <laughs> <laughs> then we took Des Bryant. <laughs> Listen, yeah, that, that mistress karma, man, she comes for you quick.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're, we're all idiots, really. So at Notre Dame. Will Fuller, 46.7% dominator rating, 91st percentile. You get a wide receiver posting a 90th percentile dominator rating at a major conference university, that paired with a 20.3 yards per reception. That's incredible. And his athletic profile looks strikingly similar to another Notre Dame alumni, Golden Tate. But something has happened to Golden Tate. This is the mystery of the season. What the hell happened to Golden Tate? Because last week, Narrative Street came to the rescue. <laughs> it was the squeaky wheel game. Golden Tate could not even accumulate double digit fantasy points in a squeaky wheel game. Rich!
1: So are you cutting him? What are we doing? I mean, hey, man, I thought Jim Bob Cooter was the savior. Uh, that's what i was told i was told based on what happened the last half of last year that jim bob cooter was to the the, the, the magician fixing oh
0: yes jim bob cooter can fix matthew stafford's
1: <laughs> technique there, tate's a real interesting guy when you look at the what happened from last year to this year And he's a guy that hasn't gone over 80 yards now in 25 straight games but i actually was kind of interested in him because he was going to go back to playing outside with the signing of Anquan Bolden and he was a guy that succeeded as a vertical target in Seattle I thought it was going to be good for him I was completely out on him as the slot option as he was used last year with his three yard ADOT and you know just getting he was basically the poor man's Jarvis Landry um you know I was like all right he's going to go back outside we're going to see his yards per catch bump up every this is a good thing for him he's going to generate some splash plays on his own and it just hasn't happened. I mean, he's just in, and then we had to play a couple weeks ago where he kind of quit on the play and he got yelled at on the sideline and I don't know if it's just all gotten to him, him not being involved or being able to get off. I mean, this is a guy they invested in too. They invested in him before Marvin Jones. He had a decent contract there too. It's just he's just not able to to get going. And now that offense they don't want to take vertical shots either. I know Marvin Jones had that one that one monstrous week off of bombs. But other than that, Marvin Jones is another guy that's caught a lot of intermediate targets and he's not really blowing the lid off of teams either. And that, that team isn't really a team that's going to take a lot of vertical shots now. Um, because of JBC and wanting to get rid of the ball and, you know, all that stuff with Matt Stafford. Um, and they found some success with that. But, I mean, almost all their success has been opponent-driven when you look back at the last year and a half. It, all of Matt Stafford's good games come against Cupcakes. I mean, it's really, it's really the layout of what that, how that system works. Um but yeah, I, I think I'm I'm probably not holding Golden Tate just at this point, but uh if you are, I don't blame you. I mean you invested into him. I mean I I you could ride it out and see what happens. I mean I'm I'm probably done though.
0: Second half of last year, which was the driving force behind the Jim Bob Cooter is a genius talk. I mean that happened with a straight face. Fantasy analysts were calling Jim Bob Cooter a genius. Well, here's why. Detroit faced Green Bay, Oakland, Philadelphia, who had one of the worst pass defenses we've ever seen last year. Green Bay again, St. Louis, New Orleans, San Francisco, Chicago. That was their second half after starting the season against teams like Minnesota, Denver, Seattle, Arizona, Minnesota again. Mm -hmm. So that's how a Mike Lombardi gets fired and replaced by someone who eventually comes to be known as a genius Look no further than the schedule. I don't have an answer for what happened to Golden Tate. He will remain a conundrum for the rest of the season. Another conundrum is Kenny Britt, because Kenny Britt went from being the most overhyped, unproductive wide receiver during his time at Tennessee to now being the least hyped, productive wide receiver. He's gone from most overrated to most underrated in a span of five
1: years. Am I wrong? He's, pre- he's perpetually been like 26 years old, too, for like five years. Yes. Uh, he just doesn't get older. It's pretty amazing. I mean, I've been actually trying to work in blurbs on Kenny Britt, like into the worksheet almost like pretty much the whole year. Um, unfortunately, the passing game is just kind of still holding him back, you know, as the translation is for fantasy points. I mean, you look at Britt, though. He's been a top 36 score in three of five games. So, I mean, that's a guy that you're using as a flex or wide receiver three. He hasn't been higher than wide receiver 27, though, in a given week, but He's a guy, another guy you talked we talked about like the target multiplier uh, in his offense. I mean, Britt has just twenty-one percent of the Rams targets compared to thirty percent for Tavon Austin. Yes, an NFL offense is giving Tavon Austin nearly one third of their pass attempts. Um and disp- but despite that gap, I mean, Kenny Britt has 25% of the receiving yards compared to just 18% for Austin. Uh and Britt has the exact same number of receptions on that despite the massive target loss. I mean, he has, and he also has the highest yardage output against the Seattle Seahawks this season. He almost had hundred. He almost dropped hundred yards to them—ninety-four yards. So he's a guy that can get it done against competition too. I mean, unfortunately, the passing pie there is the problem, not Kenny Britt. They need to
0: stop throwing the ball to Tavon Austin and throw the ball to Kenny Britt, Rich. That's the solution. Target premium, like you said, the target multiplier that you talked about. Plus 26.1%, 14th in the league, 11.1 yards per target, 18th in the league, 71% catch rate, 12th in the league. What's the problem with Kenny Britt? One red zone target. Yep. That's the problem. That's the difference between a 12-point week and an 18-point week, Rich. the Fucking touchdowns are missing in that offense. And I don't think they're ever going to materialize. And it's certainly not going to materialize when they're trying to feed the ball to Tavon Austin in the red zone. That is illogical.
1: Yeah, a lot of people don't want to admit still, you know, we do all these things. I write an article that's, you know, information laden, you know, with all kinds of stats and stuff too. But like a lot of people still don't want to acknowledge, even with all these stats out there, all this information, dude, fantasy football is about one thing. Like your dude's got to score touchdowns. Like who wins your fantasy matchup during the week? Not the guy that gets a hundred yards and like you know does even in PPR leagues. So like, your guys gotta score touchdowns, man. It's the, the game, the way it's scored is still driven by touchdowns. That's matters. That's the skeleton key. That's what happens. We can do whatever we want. That's the skeleton key. Your guys gotta score touchdowns. Um. So yeah, it's it's a problem for a guy like Kenny Britt. But yeah, that that article is at Roto World Weekly Worksheet. I mean, yeah, you can find it. I mean, uh, it's it's been around. Hold on, let me pitch this. You're terrible at pitching your own content.
0: The Roto World Weekly Worksheet by Rich Rebar is the best article in fantasy football. You sit down with a cup of coffee on a Thursday or a Friday and you read the worksheet. That's what the best minds in the industry are doing every single week. We are consuming the rich rebar worksheets, the best thing in fantasy football. Period. That's how you pitch an article, by the way. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'll get you on payroll, man. <laughs> we talked about touchdowns. There is a particular wide receiver who is adept at scoring touchdowns, going all the way back to his time at Missouri. And his emergence could be around the corner. Doriel Green Beckham. Am I wrong?
1: Um, I don't think you're I don't think you're wrong. I mean, snapshare has gone every up every game. They traded for him. They obviously wanted him. They desired to to have him on their roster. He's yet to clear four targets in a game yet. He almost had a touchdown last week. Kind of ball got kind of banged around. He just didn't pull it in. I mean, the hangup for DGB for potential fantasy use, at least as it pertains to this year, is. The Eagles are spreading out usage across like supreme low volume. I mean, they're 22nd in pass attempts per game after ranking sixth a year ago and have dropped to 17th in plays per game after ranking second a year ago. Um, and they seem hell bent on even with all their positions, like on like rotating guys. Like, they're giving like somehow Nelson Aguilar is getting the most targets there still. Um, they're playing, they have a weird running back rotation that they're you know, they're they're just giving guys a bunch of snaps. It's almost like they're too cute for their own good, and maybe it'll catch up to them or not. Um, we because you know teams when that while they're winning games don't generally change stuff um but yeah, until they we 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 had Jordan Matthews getting off, and then he's not getting it. He's had seven targets the last two weeks. Like, what, what's happening here? Like, they're they're spreading out. They're getting uh, Josh Huff all these touches now, and like they're manufacturing touches for Josh Huff now. It's like really weird where they're just like doing so much on offense. It feels like they're really getting in the way of like what's good on their offense too. In a weird way, I know that they're getting wins, but I feel like they're still cutting their you know kind of cutting their nose off you know despite their face here.
0: They are. They have Carson Wentz. They hit the lottery. They escaped from quarterback purgatory, Rich. It should be a celebration. Just play your best. Kill position players. Put them around Carson Wentz and score touchdowns. It's not hard. Carson Wentz is a precocious phenom quarterback. Put Doriel Green Beckham on one side, Jordan Matthews on the other, Zach Ertz in the slot, Darren Sproles on the backfield, and just go out and score touchdowns. It's not hard. You shouldn't be playing Nelson Aguilar and his negative 11.1 production premium, 8.1% target multiplier, 6.7 yards per target, 89th in the league. He has a below 60% catch rate. On intermediate targets. It's not like these targets are that hard to reel in. And he can't do it. This has been the Nelson Aguilar story since he entered the NFL. And in week five, two receptions on seven targets for 27 yards. I suspect that the Philadelphia coaches are watching tape of Nelson Aguilar, continuing to watch him flail, and will continue to ramp up the usage of Doral Green Beckham at the expense of Nelson Aguilar. That's my prediction. That's the rational move. And I can only assume that the Philadelphia coaches are mildly rational. I'm not saying they have to do the most rational things. We would both do things radically different than they are, but at least... Play Doro Green Beckham more snaps and Nelson Aguilar less. I think that's going to happen. <laughs> I would love the Baltimore Ravens also to play Brashad Perriman more snaps, especially this week when Steve Smith looks like he's going to be out, but I suspect they're not going to do that. My suspicion is that it's going to be Kamar Aiken filling in for Steve Smith, receiving the majority of the snaps, not. Rashad Perriman, who has yet to exceed 50% this year. Who do you think is going to be the biggest beneficiary of Steve Smith's absence in week six?
1: This is also a really dicey week because it plays off what we talked about earlier, the coaching change. They're probably going to, I mean, they're a team that's thrown the ball the most with the lead so far, 61% of the time. So they're probably going to really... They really did that? Yeah. They were really throwing it over 60% of the time with a lead? Yep, that's the number one in the league. So I think it... <laughs> What is killing. That's a hey man. That's the whisper. That's what the whisper does. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I think you're gonna see like a pretty conservative game plan from them this week, uh, and it's probably not. It's probably a terrible plan too against the Giants because they can actually defend the run pretty well, and you know are kind of like kind of dislodged in the back end. Um, Aiken will most likely take at least Smith slot snaps uh, in three wide receiver sets, and with Smith out from the majority of last week, Aiken played his most playing time of the season. Um, but Aiken is, is a dude. And I mean, in dudes are just reliant on other guys around them, like being out to be relevant, like Aiken was a season ago when he was getting 25% of the team targets, you know, when all the Baltimore offensive players died. Um, it was basically just, he was it, was, it was necessary for him to get that volume. That's not the setup this time around, even with Steve Smith out this week. Um, you've got Pitta, you've got Mike Wallace, you've got Perriman. I mean, Perriman's a guy you, you got to be kind of at least interested in. I mean, you got to think of this is really technically his rookie year. He didn't play in the preseason. Um, you got to like what you've seen. He, he caught a deep ball week one against Stephon Gilmore. He had uh, two really awesome plays against Josh Norman last week, one that almost won them the game. He just got his second foot in. So, I mean, I think that with Perriman's a guy, is like we talked about the like, guy of Kenneth Farrow, per- Perriman's a guy I want to roster if I can because uh, he could be a guy that has like a, a Devontae Parker's 2015 you know, back third uh, when he, when the when the Ravens are finally completely out of this and they turn it over and give him 80% of the snaps. They get Steve Smith that 1,000-catch mark, and they can turn this thing over uh, and really and really give him some serious burns. He's only playing like 35 snaps per game now. So, I mean, uh, I'm still interested in him now, though, uh, because I think he's trending in the right direction. Everything I, I'm not disappointed in anything I've gotten from him uh, at this point. No, I
0: love – stashing either Brashad Perriman or Dorio Green-Beckham or both, two of the size-speed athletic phenoms from the 2015 draft that we were both enamored by, now could be the time their teams finally give them full-time snaps and allow them to ascend. Just allow it. Just take your hands off the reins. Just let them run. Let them gallop. What are you waiting for? These are amazing athletes. Let them go. Let them run.
1: God damn Damn it! We're too busy trying to get Mike Wallace double-digit targets a week.
0: Yeah, so will speed Mike Wallace instead. That sounds like a great idea. <laughs> there is one team that always seems to make the rational move, always seems to be deploying their talent in an optimal way. You know which team I'm thinking of, the New England Patriots. What did they do this year? They said, well, hmm, let's see. A lot of teams are spreading it out. The three-wide receiver formation has become the new standard. Hmm. Let's do something else. Let's go to tight end set. Let's bring in Martellus Bennett, who is a close comparable to Rob Gronkowski. So you have two mythological creatures running routes that can't be guarded. Martellus Bennett can't be guarded by NFL defenders, neither can Rob Gronkowski. This has to be terrifying if you're an opposing defense. We talked about what happens when you're in the shoes of a defensive coordinator. <laughs> well, if I am in the shoes of a defensive coordinator game planning for the Patriots, I'm shitting my pants. I mean, this is terrifying. <laughs>
1: Yeah. I mean, when you look at the, the Patriots and, and the key to this is like you touched upon both of those guys, what they could do. It's not just it's not just running two tight end sets. It's writing two tight end sets with guys that you we've seen a lot of guys like now and like the Jimmy Graham ilk that there are guys that can play like a flex tight end. But these are two guys that can be an assets in the run game and can flex out. So now you've got offensive flexibility in leeway. And now if you want to play with tempo, um, you, oh, you freeze God. a team, you can't come out and nickel because you can't play either of those guys. You can't put, can't put your nickel back in either of those guys. And if you come out and nickel, they're just going to run it on you uh, with tempo in the same situation. So now it's, it's basically just dealer's choice. There's nothing you could do to this offense. And we, we saw it for one week. I know it was the Browns, but I mean, Brady came back through for the eighth most yards. He, had in his career, uh, you know, the first game (laughs) back, uh, you know. So now... (laughs) And, 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 like, wait wait till they, like, get this, like, completely ramped up uh, when they get, like, the running, you know, if Deion Lewis is to come back or if they get James White in this spot or DJ Foster um, comes back, it, it, they, they elevate him because we're guys where you can get more flexibility than a guy like LeGarrette Blunt with tempo, uh, guys that can have some interior rushing. That's what separated Deion Lewis away from the Shane Vereens and uh, Danny Woodheads of the world last year is he's a really good interior runner as well for being a small guy. So when you can play with that tempo and you can go run past – you know, you couldn't do that always with Shane Vereen and Danny Wood. Those aren't the guys that're gonna get you those yards. Um, so, I mean, if he comes back and is anything like he was in the front half of last year, like they're gonna be. I don't, I don't know what the hell you do. Like <laughs> I mean, the only, the only thing in their way. You talk about like a guy like Chris Hogan too. Is it's a good player. They add him. You know, they they just, look at the moves this team makes every off season. Uh, it's it's just complete laughable. They just run laps around the league. I mean, it's it's crazy because you know no one likes Patriots fans. Like they're the most they're the most insufferable people in the world. Oh. I apologize to, uh, to my Patriot fan brethren out there. Um, but as a whole, like you guys are getting brought down by the, the sum. I know some good Patriots, but this, the sum is bringing you guys down. It's a
0: bad group of people. I'm one of them. And when I go to games and, and my, some of my friends, they're
1: insufferable. But if any of us were to run an NFL team or, like, the way we would want to, like, we would do things like the Patriots are doing. It's, it's like, damn it, we're envious of you guys. You guys are in South Pole, We're jealous.
0: <laughs> Patriots are doing things in a clinical fashion. There's 31 other teams. That's a lot of competitors, Rich. And yet they're getting Hogan at a discount. They're trading a fifth rounder, essentially a worthless pick for Martellus Bennett, one of the best two-way tight ends in the league, the things they're doing just aren't fair. And I love that degaff gaff combo they have with the tight ends. Both Rob Gronkowski and Martellus Bennett just don't give a fuck in different ways. Martellus Bennett and his brother were featured on an E60 documentary on ESPN, and these are two of the most honest athletes you'll ever hear interviewed. They asked Martellus Bennett about his thoughts on Jason Witten, and he said that he hates Jason Witten, that Jason Witten iced him his entire time in Dallas, refused to talk to him. And he said flatly, yeah, I hate him. Do you think Martellus Bennett knows about Jason
1: Witten's declining ADOT the last five years? (laughs) yeah i mean i love that i love that whole piece i mean it was an article uh, a couple months ago before it was the e60 piece it was really good i like those thoughts on a lot i like their thoughts on a lot of things i mean they listen they're they're not definitely definitely not some guys there to hold their tongues but yeah i mean the patriots i mean this is this offense man i mean it's just so wheels up i mean
0: yeah the patriots are playing at a higher level of efficiency than the rest of the league it's not just the front office personnel moves it's the in-game tactics. The Patriots have become the Golden State Warriors of the NFL. They've identified the most efficient plays in any given game situation, and they're just running those plays every time. So you said dealer's choice. That was an apropos description. They're just running whatever is the most efficient play on any given down and distance. The Patriots are not trying to adhere to some predetermined run-pass ratio. You could see the Patriots getting down early and completely abandoning the run, never calling another run play for the rest of the season, just like the Golden State Warriors just decided we're not going to shoot twos. We're just going to always shoot threes. That's where the Patriots are now. But the one issue is as a fantasy gamer, not all of their skill position players are going to be able to produce on a weekly basis. How does this offensive style
1: impact players like Julian Edelman. I, th- I think Edelman is, is still all right. He had 10 targets last week. He still had the highest share, I think it affects more the ancillary guys that listen, Chris Hogan's not always going to turn five targets into 115 yards. Martellus Bennett isn't always going to turn six targets into three touchdowns. Those are the guys that you're going to just going to have to live with. They're going to, you play them. You're going to have to play these guys because they're offensive attachment, but you're just going to have to know like there's going to be weeks where these guys don't, don't, they don't, they don't hit those ceilings. Um, with, they're going to have some more volatility, but I still think the two big pieces are fine uh, right now. There's some it's some interesting things going on at the running game. You know what's going on with with Brady back. Uh, they were the number one rushing team in the league uh, in terms of uh, you know run pass splits when Brady was out. We knew that was going to hold up. It was the it was the highest they'd ever been since Brady's been there, and it was while he was out. So I mean, they came back and they threw it 40 times in the air last week in a game they controlled the whole, the whole game. They were 60 percent pass through three quarters in that game. Uh they're gonna they don't care like <laughs> Rich, Rich, they were sixty yeah. percent pass in a game they were leading thirty
0: yep. to seven. Legarrett Blunt only received eighteen carries in a game with perfect running back game script. If there's a player I'm worried about in this offense, it's Legarrett Blunt.
1: Yeah, sure. Because you're—he's basically back to being just like a touchdown or bust option now. I mean, it was earlier in the season we could play him as uh, the, the 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 linchpin of the offense. Gronk was out. I mean, he's listen—he's gonna get twenty touches for sure. We can we can ride those. We can use those touches in a standard league uh, and, and and play for the touchdown upside that he had. Now you're just playing strictly for can they give him a layup like we talk about, like, can they get him a layup? Uh, so yeah, you're going to have to either like roll him out just in those hopes. Um, but you've, you've lost, I think that RB one, like that weekly, he, he was a guy who he was consistently getting ranked in the top 12, even by me, uh, at, during that stretch, but you just can't do it now because he's going to have so many four weeks and there's going to be weeks where they completely just don't have, uh, the run game as part of their, their repertoire. They don't care Like you said, they don't care. They will. They did it last. We saw against like the jets where they ran it. What they ran it like nine times in a game and threw it 63 times. Uh, I think there's a gate. like they don't care they do not care <laughs> like <laughs> clinical approach what is
0: the correct play on this given down and distance in this particular game situation
1: yeah and I mean so I mean like the thing you're worried about though I think you still worry about the most though with the guy like Edelman it isn't the target share it's that you're still chasing like last year he had that career high touchdown rate uh and was red zone loaded and now uh, and we've already seen that even even for Rob Gronkowski like he's got red zone company now so I mean you can't really count on Julian Edelman. You know, uh, to be the guy, maybe off some rub routes, some stuff like that that could generate some touchdowns for him. But you can't really expect him to have that, you know, double digit touchdown upside like he was gearing towards last year over a full season.
0: So Legarrette Blunt has gone from Andre Drummond to Andrew Bogut.
1: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much, right? I
0: mean, pretty much.
1: It is. He is. He is the. He is the Andrew Bogut of the NFL.
0: He is. And the problem with Julian Edelman is you're right. There's no touchdowns. Zero touchdowns. Only two red zone receptions this year for Julian Edelman. I agree that the ancillary players are going to be wildly volatile. My favorite GPP plays are Patriots ancillary players. Chris Hogan, Martellus Bennett. Those are tremendous GPP plays. And those Martellus Bennett touchdowns and long passes to Chris Hogan, they necessarily cannibalize touches even from Rob Gronkowski and Julian Edelman. Martellus Bennett, for example, pushes Rob Gronkowski out of that clear-cut best fantasy tight end in football, chair. The presence of Chris Hogan potentially pushes Julian Edelman out of that wide receiver one in fantasy chair that he occupied last year. So while the Patriots offensive production is a boon for Patriots fans,
1: their offensive skill position depth is a concern. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean, how are Rob Gronkowski teams doing so far this year? <laughs> if you drafted Rob Gronkowski
0: in a fantasy football league, you're already fucked.
1: I mean it's not all like because of that, like we played on. I mean he he hasn't played in it in, you know, just one healthy game and he was good last week. But I mean
0: But the reason I say that team is fucked is because I know that owner that drafted Rob Gronkowski and he also drafted DeAndre
1: Hopkins in the first round. <laughs> yeah, it's probably that's probably pretty true. Probably Adrian Peterson if he didn't. Oh! <laughs> but yeah i mean i i still think that those are still the two primary uh guys though i mean i think Gronk will will get most of his even though like i said he's got company man in the red zone for sure the touchdowns in
0: particular are going to be cannibalized in new england and we have to mention this the one guy who's going to benefit the most from all the skill position fireworks is tom brady that's it this week on the playerprofile.com player rankings, we have Tom Brady posted up in the number 1 position for all the reasons Rich and I outlined in the last 10 minutes. Cam Newton is playing the Saints. Cam Newton is playing the Saints and we cannot justify ranking Cam Newton ahead of Tom Brady. Think about that. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'm hot in the, all the kitchen sinks, man. I'm on fire. I'm on fire in those. Like my, my, I think across all four, I've got like four losses. In kitchen sink, too, I have David Johnson and Kevin Coleman. So, like, that's been – and I have A.J. Green. So, like, I've been out the blocks in that one. <laughs>
0: but when you traded a second-round rookie pick for Larry Fitzgerald at the beginning of last
1: season, I saw that trade come across my desk that's a typical dynasty move like we talked escalators or elevators. uh you know definitely that's the those are layup trades man
0: he was clearly
1: back and
0: we know the larry fitzgerald profile we know that he's gonna be here for a while he's not going anywhere
1: I think that's the shocking thing is I picked him up last year for like that run but like he's been like awesome for me now too. Like it's still like I'm still getting I'm still getting like you know dividends from that like it's still you know, you're going to be receiving dividends
0: for another few years because he takes immaculate care of his body. Like this guy's in tremendous shape.
1: I mean, you are when you're when you're putting uh, wide receiver one numbers. The Drew Stanton on Thursday nights, hey. hey.
0: <laughs> Roster construction methodology meets individual player analysis. It was just the perfect player to acquire at the perfect time in the space-time continuum. Mm -hmm. Beams of light all hitting. When I saw that trade, it was like boom in the sky. It was like a starburst. I was like, oh, look at Rich. That trade was a sweet spot of the bat, my friend. I loved it.